Hey listeners, so we're gonna get onto the episode in a second. Um, at the moment of publishing, we've had a couple of weeks with news about migrant children in detention camps um, separated from their families at the United States border with Mexico. Uh, these people are fleeing violence and economic injustice, and they're going into a country that promotes itself as, you know, the best in the world, <laughs> um, only to be met with agents forcibly taking away their kids, putting them in, in cages, obviously without any mechanism of accountability for their safety or well-being or anything else. Uh, this is not okay, and as a small platform that we might be, Ruth and I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the reality surrounding us and affecting, well, all of us, because we live here in this planet. Um, this is important, and um, sometimes, you know, we find ourselves paralyzed and not knowing what to do. So before we start, I just want to leave you very quickly with three quick things. At the big, big, big macro level, big society level, just make noise. Talk about this, you know, don't let it be forgotten. Protest, vote if you can, wherever you can. Vote for policies that center human rights and humans. Um, and have them at their core and vote people in. Um, but also, you know, donate money to organizations that are working on this. Volunteer, get involved, make art, just make noise and make change. That's at a big level. At a me medium level, just look after one another, you know, be aware that people around you, friends, people you work with, people you go to school with might be affected by these bad times in ways you don't know. So be kind, uh, be aware. It's hard, you know, to have Sally ask you, Hey, how was your weekend? As someone put it on Twitter, you know, and the news of uh, children being put in cages just broke, you know? So just be kind to one another and be aware of, uh, of the realities around all of us. And finally, at a personal and very intimate level, take care of yourself. Uh, nurture yourself, keep yourself informed, uh, keep yourself strong. And um, things might seem doom and gloom, and they are, but find the, the pockets of enjoyment, as I like to call it. Learn, learn a lot so we can be aware of pockets of awesome that we have already, and so we can fight to maintain and improve these pockets of awesome. Uh, for example, in the episode that you're about to hear, uh, we talk about libraries, libraries and digital rights. And... Um, For instance, in working in this episode, I found myself with a new appreciation of libraries and public space. And I also got to hear a lot about how many, many library workers are working to maintain and improve these structures so they are not super, you know, status quo <coughs> white. Um, you know, in a time of Google at our fingertips, why are these spaces still so important? So, you know, we talk about this and more in this episode. We hope you enjoy. And thank you again for listening. We really, really appreciate your time. All right, Marianella out, let's go. Uh, hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast where we talk about technology and social change and how they collide. Hi, Ruth. Hi, hi, Marianella. <laughs> um, this week we're being joined by Ian J. Clark, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that in a moment. And this week what we want to discuss is basically libraries and the internet and how they connect together, and also a little bit about private and public spaces in the uh, the digital age. Yeah, but why do we want to talk about libraries? Like, what's the connection between libraries and digital rights? Well, basically what we thought was really interesting is that they're kind of one of the last public spaces. Like, they 
the very existence of libraries is really radical. You get to read things for free. You get to learn about things for free. You can use computers. You know, yeah, like the fact that you can do all of this stuff without having to pay to be in the space. And that this like lot of stuff to do with like no loitering laws that control like how we can be outside don't don't exist in those spaces. Yeah, you get to hang out. Yeah, yeah. And we thought that other people might agree with us that libraries are pretty badass. But in terms of what they have to do with the internet and how that's all relevant, that's why we brought in a librarian to talk <laughs> about that with us. So that's Ian. So hi, Ian. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're really excited to learn more about libraries with you. And wondering if you can just introduce yourself first, tell us who you are and what do you do? Hi, um, thanks for inviting me to uh, join your podcast. I'm really excited about this. So my name is Ian Clark. So I, I'm an academic librarian. I work in a university. I've been working in libraries now um, public and academic libraries since about uh, 2005. Um, qualified as a librarian in 2012, um, and I've been a, a kind of academic liaison librarian in the university I work in now for for about four years. Pretty badass. So, what is the intersection between libraries and digital rights for you? Um, well, I think there's a few things that kind of really stand out for me in terms of uh, libraries and, and uh, digital realm, particularly in terms of, you know, accessing information. Obviously, you know, working in a library, that's kind of the main purpose of our role is to, you know, facilitate access to information. And, um, you know, in recent years with the uh, with some of the legislation that's come through is kind of created some serious problems in terms of how we, we do that role. So uh, one of the things that uh, our professional body, so we have a professional body called SILIP, it used to stand for something, but now it's just kind of SILIP. And um, they had two kind of key ethical principles that they expect the profession to kind of uh, adhere to that really sort of speak to me in terms of libraries and digital rights. Um, number three is commitment to the defence and the advancement of access to information, ideas and works of the imagination. And um, key principle eight, ethical principle eight, is respect for confidentiality and privacy in dealing with information users. So I can see very clearly both of those key principles link to um, obviously to access to information, but also in terms of some of the things that have emerged in the past few years um, around the NSA, um, and more recently around things like the Investigatory Powers Act, you know, there's very clear kind of um, kind of link there between what we're supposed to be about and the things that are going on um, in society that, that we need to be um, aware of and um, indeed tackling. Just, just for the listeners, the Investigatory Powers Act is a law that passed in the UK. And um, in case you couldn't tell already, uh, Ian is a librarian based in a UK university. Um, just because we know we have listeners in different parts of the world. So before we were getting ready for this um, interview, we read a paper that you wrote about the digital divide in the post-Snowden era. One of the things that you said in it is that mass digital surveillance is a threat to intellectual privacy, autonomy of web use, and democracy itself. And we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you see as the role librarians have 
in fighting mass surveillance and in the post-Snowden era, as you put it? So I think, you know, going back to those those ethical principles, I think there's there's kind of a very clear commitment in terms of the professional body and um, in terms of what we should be doing. Problem is with a professional body, as with all professional bodies, there's a kind of statement there, a nominal statement that we're supposed to subscribe to. But in reality, it's questionable whether we actually do. In fact, it's more than questionable. We don't. It's certainly um, not in public libraries or in academic libraries so kind of what, what prompted me to write the piece was that um, I was very concerned about the fact that you know we have these ethical principles about respect for confidentiality and privacy this commitment to access to information and yet so as the Snowden uh, revelations emerged it became very clear that the digital space was not was not a free space it was a space that was controlled by the states which is, you know, something we've kind of long suspected, but made real um, by these revelations. And I think it kind of emphasised the importance for um, for me, for libraries and librarians to be actually tackling this. And, and what particularly concerned me as well was the fact that um, in UK public libraries, it's a very difficult arena to be able to kind of put in place some of the things that should be in place to ensure... Um, the privacy of our patrons, ensuring that they can access information freely. You know, it's particularly difficult in public libraries because they're run by local councils and they've got that kind of council oversight. Um, On top of that as well, you've obviously got a very clear link um, to the government with government oversight um, because public libraries are are a statutory service that's overseen by by government. I mean, partly I wrote wrote the piece, the article itself, because I wanted to kind of explore the issues around free speech, about privacy, about confidentiality, about intellectual freedom, and what we can do in libraries to to kind of make good on our ethical principles. Um, Because like I said, at the moment, I I think we're falling some way short of, of being able to do that that's that's really cool um we also noticed that um you published that paper on the journal for radical librarianship and that sounds like like pretty cool um i'm curious we were curious what does uh, radical librarianship mean to you the journal was a was a thing that we, we kind of there's a group of us who who kind of uh, collaborated on this um very clearly led by the editor um, Stuart Lawson. In terms of radical librarianship, so what is that? Um, I guess my um, sense of what it means to be radical kind of comes from um, what Angela Davis uh, said about um, radical simply means grasping things at the roots. And that's a very kind of, um, I think, powerful statement for me about what radical is. I, I see radicalism, and particularly in terms of Angela Davis's definition of it, or her explanation of the definition of it, I see Angela Davis's quote in, in two uh, ways affecting sort of libraries and, and library workers. Partly, I see it as a kind of what are the the root causes of the the problems we face, um, which I would argue is you know capitalism as it stands and the the problems that capitalism creates. But also think about it in terms of getting to the root of librarianship. So the root of librarianship, the, the core task that we're supposed to fulfil is um, to provide or ensure equal access um, to information for everybody. And and again, I don't think we are true to that principle. I, I don't think we're true to that principle, both in terms of 
you know, the mass surveillance that's in place that we don't protect our users from. Um, I don't think that's in place in terms of um, filtering that occurs on um, library uh, library computers. I don't think that's in place in terms of this kind of uh, notion that you often hear talked about um, amongst uh, some library workers, uh, the idea that the library is a kind of neutral space, is a safe space. Um, I don't think we we can feasibly argue that that's that that's true. That that's kind of where the radical bit comes from. In in my own personal view, anyway, comes from that. What's the root cause of our problems? Capitalism. What are the roots of our our work? Um, what's the core kind of belief? And I believe it's that kind of equal access to information that again we're not kind of fulfilling. Yeah, actually, I really want to pick up on like. Actually, I, I, you know, I want to re- respond to several things there because there's a lot of really interesting points. In other podcast episodes, we've questioned the idea of neutrality before and like what can anything really be be seen in this neutral way and that what we view as neutral tends to really mean something that feels comfortable to privileged people. But actually, we saw the thing that you shared on Twitter the other day. There's this story about how a guy was questioned under the prevent scheme, Mohammed Farouk, I think, um, for reading a book on terrorism in a university library. And we wondered if you wanted to say, like, expand a little bit more on how that shows that libraries are not neutral spaces. And how do you think librarians should be responding in that kind of situation? And like how you deal with this like complicated idea that of the prevent scheme, that there's some kind of obligation to report on people? Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult one. In terms of uh, Mohammed Farouk, um, so this happened at um, Staffordshire University Library. And um, I should say as well um, that it wasn't actually a library library worker who was uh, responsible for the calling in um, under the prevent legislation. Um, however, I think this this gets to um, the problem as I see it, um, because you know I, I would argue that the library is not a safe space with the with the prevent duty on universities. The, the library cannot possibly be a safe space. And I think the the problem is as well is is in both public libraries and academic libraries, very often the controllers of the space are not the library workers. In a university, part of a number of other departments, um, you've got you know hierarchy in place. You know these these kinds of you've got security obviously that work in uh, on on campus um, in many universities. So there's that kind of you know we don't we don't control that space. You know, if, if 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 we were in control of the space, then it might make it easier for us to manage it in terms of, you know, how do we tackle, prevent, how do we ensure that, you know, if somebody wants to pick up a book and read it about terrorism, that um, they're not picked up by security and, and reported to the police just purely on the basis of the fact that the person is a person of colour and there's some kind of, you know, spurious uh, belief that they might be sort of in, engaging in some form of terrorist activity. We don't have control of that space, so we so we, we can't possibly argue that it's safe um, because it's not down to us. It's down to other individuals and other groups and other sort of, sort of sections of the organisation in which we work in that actually control it so how how do we tackle that so it's a very uh, very difficult one i would like to think that library workers would just would not call up um security or report someone to the police because of the book they've picked up partly because going back to those ethical principles which we're supposed to aspire to 
you know, there's that um, notion that we should respect confidentiality and privacy in dealing with information users. The moment we go to security, run to the police because we've got suspicions about somebody reading a particular book that someone may consider dangerous in some way, that all goes out the window. So we have to be very clear on that. But like I said, you know, in a, the way our um, structures are, are formulated, it's, it's simply not possible for them because we don't control the spaces in which people access and use the library. And just for very quickly for our listeners, we talk about the prevent scheme. I think we've touched on this in previous episodes, but um, this is this particular thing happening in the UK that's focused at um, surveillance of Muslims and Muslim communities, particular. Is it just for Muslim Muslim communities, or is it? Uh, it's for everybody, but like, yeah, it's, but like, it's yeah. supposed to be about preventing extremism, and the people who are proponents of the scheme will say that it's actually about fighting fascism, and it's great for you know getting rid of those Nazis, and you're supposed to have this. This idea is there's like an obligation on teachers, people at universities, I believe people now doctors in the NHS as well, in order to report people who so show signs of extremism. But the reality is that it's Muslims who are reported on the scheme and mm. also that the things that they use as signs of extremism that people are supposed to watch out for tend to be things that mean people who look Muslim. Or, or who are Muslim. Yeah. The legislation doesn't say that it's about that, but the reality of how it's used is much more about targeting. Yeah. Yeah. But Ian, you um, you are an academic librarian, and we talked about you know like the, the powers that be, um, like you don't have control. Not you, as in you, Ian, but like <laughs> librarians don't have control of the space. Um, is it any different in public libraries? Is what's the dynamic there in order to yeah make them safe or safer spaces? Um, I think in public libraries, it's uh, a stif- I, I think you know you've got um, you've got a certain degree of control, but I would say overall, it's it's kind of no no different really. You work for a local authority, you have that kind of that hierarchy and structure to deal with. You have, and you will have computers in the library for people to um, use and access. But in terms of the people who work in that library, they won't be able to see um, very often what it is you're doing. And they're unlikely to report to you anyway. However, you know, you sit on a public library PC, same in any other public space. As soon as you sit on that PC, you're kind of, in a way, being monitored. You know, you log in to access a computer using your library cards. If, If you're sort of engaging in the sort of suspicious activity, then that may be picked up. Um, you, you've just got no no real safe space. You know, again, going back to the to the point about you know mass surveillance and and the the reason why I wrote that article in the first place. You know, no matter what, in public libraries, you haven't got that infrastructure to protect the users from that kind of oversight, whether it be an IT department in your public library service or you know, of course, GCHQ and so on and so on. What I'm kind of really encouraged about, and and again, it's one of the reasons why I I wrote the article, because I I couldn't foresee work in this area being done in the UK because of the hierarchy, because it's part of the council, because of the government oversight, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there's a library worker in in Newcastle, um, Aud Sharian, who's uh, doing some amazing work at the moment. She's been doing like crypto parties in Newcastle. She's 
going around the country at the moment, teaching public library workers how to um, ensure user privacy and, and how to protect themselves. And it's something that I just didn't envisage that it would happen, um, and it is happening. Uh, and so I kind of got some hope in that like amazing work that she's doing, that maybe there'll be a, like a little bit of a ripple effect and, and people will pick it up and run with it. And that kind of stance that we have of, you know, ensuring the privacy of our users is something that actually becomes meaningful rather than just a, a statement on a professional body's website that looks very good but means very little. That actually segues nicely into the next thing we were going to ask about, because you're talking about people going on computers in, in public library spaces. And one of the things we said right at the beginning that we love about them is that they're free and public, despite there are actually a lot of attempts to close them. And despite the fact that there are lots of publishing companies, there are lots of people who sell books who still don't like libraries. And, you know, when you've got all of these different forces, it's pretty cool they're still there. But... What we were thinking about was when you go online in a library, do you think that they can still be counted as public spaces? Because when you go online, you tend to be interacting with a lot of commercially owned properties, proprietary software, and that kind of thing. You know, you might be using Chrome, um, which is owned by Google, even though it's a public library. And I, I know also that like a thing that you mentioned is about getting libraries to use more privacy-friendly things like search engines like DuckDuckGo. And... I was wondering, like, yeah, first of all, do you think that they can still be public spaces given those conditions? I think they can be public spaces. I think that that's possible. I think they're not at the moment. Um, I think, like you say, you know, you go onto any uh, public library PC and none of the infrastructure being placed to prevent trackers or, you know, to default to a search engine that doesn't collect all your data and, and sell it for, you know, profit. You know, there's, there's nothing in place for that. It's not a public space in, in that sense, I don't think. That kind of online engagement, I, I, I don't see that as, as public. I see that as a, as a private sphere that we're encouraging people to access, you know, pretty uncritically and pretty, pretty much not giving them any kind of sense of the, the problems associated with um, some of the things they do online um, and some of the behaviours that they do because they haven't been taught um, and don't know about, you know, the various things that are on there to make money off of them, basically. So, um, yeah, but I, I mean, I think it could be a public space. I mean, you know, my sort of utopian, idealistic vision of the future, I, th I think libraries could have a purely public space online print whatever but in in the present day um no but then as i said before i'm kind of hopeful with some of the things that are happening you know there's been increasing um i wouldn't i would by no means say it's anything to do with that paper i wrote because it was clearly not there was things that were happening long before that um there's the library freedom project in the u.s you know that was, that was going for several years before I even um, started to look into this. What what is that? The Library Freedom Project is a um, basically um, going out into public libraries in the US and setting up things like tour relays, showing people how to surf the net privately and securely, and kind of educating library users and, and library workers in all these kinds of things. And that was set up by um, Alison Macrina, who's a library, a US library worker, and she's done, you know, a lot of a lot of work. I mean, she's basically the kind of leading light work goes really, and we're all kind of sort of trying to catch up and keep up with the, with the work that she's doing. She's been a huge inspiration for anybody who who works 
uh, around privacy and surveillance in libraries um, in the UK as much as in the US. That's fascinating. I, I love how there's a lot of like pockets of, of people and, and I, I was going to say pockets of resistance, um, but like people just doing work in different fronts. And um, I mean, and, and I love how, how you mentioned, uh, you know, they're, they're library workers. It's not just random people who find this amusing. It's like people in the libraries are really concerned about this. Um, but you know, we wanted to ask too, like sometimes people refer to websites uh, like Google or Wikipedia as being like the new libraries or the libraries of today. Um, <laughs> how do you feel hmm. about that uh, definition? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, uh, as you'd expect, I'm not. I'm not comfortable with that in a number of ways. I, I think it's it's very easy though to get stuck into this kind of idea that both both libraries historically and library workers are somehow kind of virtuous. That we're you know we're not like Google. We you know we act in a different way. We get the information for you. We don't do anything. Uh, unethical you know we're pure as pure can be and I, I think you know I think that's a very dangerous mindset to get into we're not by any stretch of imagination perfect I think you know in terms of our kind of guiding principles we should be kind of ahead of Google in terms of you know looking after our, our patrons our users best interests but again you know it's, it's, it's very dangerous to, to kind of go down that road I think because even even today you know we we are failing in a lot of areas that we espouse a certain kind of set of principles and beliefs that that we claim to be the, the sort of bedrock of our work um, and yet we're not we're not doing that so I think you know um, you know in, in terms of degrees of saintliness I think we're maybe slightly above the Googles of this world. But um, I wouldn't want to be kind of too evangelical about what it is we do and and why we're kind of the go-to people if you want to be, you know, getting the kinds of search services and, and information retrieval that Google offer. Yeah, I think often people talk about Google and Wikipedia and sites like that as libraries almost as an excuse mm. to, or to ask the question, well, why do we even need libraries if we have this already? I think it kind of comes from that assumption of uh, if we can Google it, why should I go to the library or make you of the library services and um, yeah I don't know I think there's a gap there and I think there is a value like a really strong value in it being a physical space that you can go to that's somewhere that, that isn't in the home that that isn't like we said like corporate owned it isn't in your your boss's computer or whatever at work like it's true that if you go on the computer in a library you can be tracked but I think having that space that does exist like in this different dimension that isn't home that isn't that isn't work is something like really powerful and that I think that it's really important to hold on to those to those kinds of spaces because otherwise we will end up just only having corporate owned spaces I mean there's a whole problem in London with a lot of public parks um, actually being owned by corporates sort of secretly um, they're buying them and they still seem like public spaces but in fact they're owned by corporates which means they can then enact certain rules against protesting or you know loitering and that kind of thing so I think having these spaces that are clearly not corporate owned is really important even though them being government owned fundamentally has its own issues you're sort of touching on it yourself just now I think um, building to that narrative of um, which is very kind of pernicious this idea that 
every, not only is everyone on, online, um, but everyone knows what they're doing online, um, which is a you know a complete myth. I think the the last load of stats, stats that came through from the Office for National Statistics in the UK was around about five million people have never used the internet, and you can kind of extrapolate from that. There's probably a good chunk of people that have. Um, they may have access to the internet, but they don't know how to use it effectively um, to get the information they need. Equally on top of that, you know, with with the way government legislation has gone in terms of social security, there's very much been a kind of push to drive things online. And, and what you find is people who, who are desperate for work and having to go through the processes that the government have set up really struggle with doing the most basic things, not only on the internet, but also on a computer. So... It does kind of feed into this idea of, well, this problem is all sorted now because we've got an index that, you know, you can search and you can find every piece of information that's ever been created. But the reality is, is for, for, for very many people um, across the world, um, you know, it's just not a, not a reality for them that they can just sort of click online and, and get the information they want. Yeah, and, and I think in your article, the one we've mentioned about the digital divide, post Snowden, you do mention that the digital divide is not just access to internet, but also access to the skills um, required to, to use the tools and also access, I don't know, I don't know if I should say, access to the right of privacy, like who, who gets tracked, who doesn't. So it's, it's more than just like, do you know how to access the internet or not, right? It's like, do you have access to all the benefits of technology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, um, you know, initially it was all very focused on connectivity. Are people connected to the internet? And it kind of moved on to, to digital skills. But I kind of feel like, you know, again, this is another um, thing, like I said, that kind of motivated me to write what I what I wrote. It was kind of privacy was absent from the skills, the discussion about skills. You know, it wasn't kind of seen as that important, this ability to, to kind of engage in that space privately. And again, when I come back to things like, you know, ethical principles and blah, 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 I kind of feel like that's something that should really be fundamental. If we're going to talk about digital skills and we're going to talk about respecting confidentiality and privacy with information users, then we have to understand that part of those information skills have to be around privacy and, and managing people's, show people how to manage the online spaces. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's really important. And, and you know, it, it has been very absent from, from the discussion, certainly uh, before I wrote that paper, less so now. Um, but it is, a, I think it's a really key element of that digital in inclusion. I'm actually curious about something, right? So you keep mentioning these principles and the Salic principles. Where did they come from and who wrote them? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I imagine they were kind of developed by committee some, some years ago. I think it's very dangerous to get too hooked onto these kind of ethical principles that have kind of been drawn up. Um, we've got no real kind of notion of why they've been drawn up. I see it as a kind of a way to justify my position within um, my line of work. Because for me, put aside the ethical uh, principles for one second, for me, our work is all about ensuring free and equal access to information. Okay. Once you put in surveillance, or once you have a security state uh, where mass surveillance is the natural position, you no longer have that. So for me, that that's kind of where it comes from. Do people have free and equal access to information when we have a surveillance state? And my answer to that is no, they do not. The ethical principles um, that SILIP, the the professional body, espouse for me, they're a way of saying to 
people across my line of work, particularly senior managers, particular people who are, you know, part and parcel of the professional body. It's about saying to them, look, you espouse these ethical principles. You have them on your website. However, we're not doing that. Um, So these ethical principles look great, but there's no kind of meat to them whatsoever. There's no kind of... Um, substance to them they're just kind of nice cozy words that sit on a website and and look good so it kind of yeah my my, my kind of take on this more comes from the what, what does it mean to be a library worker what does it mean to work in the library what are we supposed to be there for what are we supposed to be doing and I just refer back to those ethical principles as a way of saying saying to people across my line of work you know this is what our professional body espouses does that match up with what we're doing I don't think it does so nice no, that was really strong. Sorry. It was really strong. Mind blown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel that was a bit of a, I feel that was a bit of a rant. Oh, no, so. <laughs> rants are good. In fact, rants are no, strongly encouraged. <laughs> In fact, this is a safe space for rants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, I mean I think we're nearing the, the end of the interview. Is there anything else that you wanna tell us about um, libraries and their intersections with rights and justice or um, I, th- I think one other thing I should point out and um, completely missed out earlier on it's, it's, a, it's a really important point when we talk about safe spaces the library is a safe space there is one group of people for which the library is a safe space um, without questions as far as I'm concerned and that's white people the library is not a safe space if you're a person of colour at all because we've got the Prevent Duty, because we've got Investigatory Powers Act, which is very clearly targeted at particular groups of people. It's not targeted at your average white person going into the library, that you're not of interest to the security services by and large. It's the um, Hamid Umar Farouks of this world. They're the ones that are the targets. So in, in no sense, I don't think any public space can be considered a safe space for um, a person of colour under any stretch of the imagination. White people, yes. And I guess this is where it comes back to, for me, I think public libraries, academic libraries, um, they're kind of kind of zones of whiteness, really. You know, there are white spaces, um, the collections are white, the white people who go in and out are perfectly safe and, you know, they can do their thing and not be troubled. If you're a person of colour, you don't have those privileges afforded to white people in, in a library. Um, you don't have that safe space that the white middle class person walking into the library will have. I think it's really important to make that distinction. It's, it's a safe space for some. Um, it's certainly not a safe space for others. And, and it never will be so long as we have Prevent Duty, Investigatory Powers Act, and, and the continual kind of, you know, as the Home Office like to call it here in the UK, the kind of um, hostile environment approach to anybody who's uh, foreign, basically. Or could be perceived as foreign. Yeah, or could be perceived as foreign. So, yeah, I, I, it, it just it just cannot be. Yeah, I think it's really important to also make that, that point. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and, and we have not even gotten into, I mean, there's PhDs probably many... Um, written about this how like even the the classification of information itself embodies those yeah those values um we've been talking a lot about use and access and you know the space and and access to information but even like classifying the info itself uh, you know am i yeah what category am i under am i under history or am i under other kinds of history you know um but that's i guess that's a completely different um if related but 
wider conversation. So for me, sort of whiteness permeates everything about um, library work. You know, it's it's a very white profession. It's I think the way the education is set up. It kind of lends itself even more to you know white middle class people coming into it. As a result of that, the knowledge that's kind of uh, indexed and categorised is done by white people. So people of colour are kind of very much been excluded from that historically. Um, it's, it's white structures that have been set up in in the library. So I think there's, there's huge issues there around categorisation and, and how as a profession it's kind of sort of um, this, this whiteness has manifested itself. Yeah. No, it it makes all all sense. Ruth. So thanks very much for joining us, Ian. Where can people find you and more about what you do? Okay, so um, you can find me at um, IJ Clark on Twitter. And I also have a blog, which is at uh, infoism.co.uk, which is infoism.co.uk. Well, thank you very much, Ian. It was a pleasure for you to join us on this episode and talk to us about libraries and your experience with them and all of your knowledge and information around digital literacy, around surveillance in libraries, and especially all this interesting knowledge around the principles and what it is that really guides libraries in the librarians even, what it is that really guides librarians in the work that they're doing. Um, So that was great. Thank you so much. Plus one to all of that. Thank you so much. So Marinella, what did you what did you take away from today? What did I take away? Mm-mm-mm. One eternity later. <laughs> um, what did I take away? I mean, as I said in the beginning of the episode, I think lately I've been needing a lot of these like pockets of awesome. I need to learn more about the awesome things that are already happening and find ways to maintain and improve them. And I think libraries is a are is a really good example of public infrastructure that is out there that allows spaces for people to get information and um, hang out and access the internet, for example. There's a lot of government services that are infinitely easier if you do them online so you know just to start thinking about the ramifications of access and uh, and my personal experience with libraries i mean shout out to the vancouver public library and the simon fraser university library it has been amazing like sometimes they have displays there like this month is pride month and they have uh, queer lgbt trans displays where you can i've actually already checked out two books just from running into them so you know like they have their ways to signal their community that that's a safe space, safe-ish, safer space, and um, and I, and I think that's what I'm taking from from this conversation. Just like just the the prompt to look for the awesome things that we have and look for the things that people want to preserve and to look for the people who are working to make them better. You know, like the radical librarians and other badass librarians and Ian and I think I think I need that and. I'm sticking to that. What are you taking with you? Oh, I just want to firstly say, plus one, that the Vancouver Library is awesome. When I visited Vancouver, I went to the library because that's the kind of tourist that I am. And I was like, whoa, it's so huge. And I was recently inspired to go to Birmingham Library in the UK, which is the largest public library we have. It was amazing, you know, like seven floors worth of books. And they had a garden there. And I was like asking one of the librarians, oh, is it okay if I could just, you know, take a book into the garden? They were like, yes, of course it is. And it was just like, 
what a lovely space like what a welcoming place to just encourage people to read and like not be restrictive and be like no the books are precious you could get dirt on it so that was just like part of why i took away from doing this is like a stronger inspiration around like supporting my local libraries and supporting the libraries that are out there because at the same time I know that they they are under attack and I, I meant what I said right at the start of the episode that libraries are in themselves radical they are a place where you can get stuff for free in our capitalist culture that's surprising that they've survived and I honestly think that today if someone proposed this idea it, it wouldn't pass people would think that was crazy and they'd be like how does it scale? How is it sustainable? But who makes money from it? What market are you disrupting? Yes, yes. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I've worked in copyright reform and so I've heard the line from publishers all the time. How dare you ask for anything for free? I've heard people tell teachers that they expect too much for free. So the fact that libraries are still here, just fighting for their existence is amazing. And I think I'm inspired that there are these, as you said, these pockets, this, these organizations, you know, there are people who identify as radical librarians who are maintaining that radical stance not afraid to remember that like what they are in existence as a library is a space that is trying to strive to be inclusive about access to information for free about skills and about all of that stuff not a capitalist space and i also thought it was interesting in that conversation about digital literacy and using libraries as places for education beyond like just reading the books, was this idea that digital literacy should include learning about protecting yourself online and that part of using a computer well should always be learning how to keep yourself safe. And I thought that was interesting. It's like a different way of just looking at the package of what digital literacy is. And I really, really like that idea. And I'm quite excited by the possibilities and the projects of using libraries in that way, of teaching people about online security in those spaces. Um, so I think that's really good. And I yeah. also think the one thing I had to take away was recognizing some of my white privileged love of libraries, perhaps the, the fact that like I've always seen them as this like radical space that's inclusive, that's welcoming, that anyone can go to and haven't really been thinking about the ways in which some people don't feel included and welcome in libraries. And I think that's something that I just need to take more of a critical eye on. So I'm also kind of balancing my enthusiasm with that. Yeah, I appreciate it that um, Ian mentioned uh, right at the end there how whenever we talk about libraries, as safe spaces he well, acknowledged like safe spaces for white people like most of the western world or the world period it was it was good for me to hear from someone like him to acknowledge that because it's kind of like uh, keeping ourselves in check into not put not making libraries into rock stars <laughs> basically <laughs> spoiler alert future episode yeah it's 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 good just to have that critical eye and say rather than just throwing words around like safe spaces and feminist and intersection and white culture and blah 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 people of color to actually stop a little bit and be like okay are these spaces actually safe safe for who who's working in there you know and then we didn't get because obviously it was out of the scope 
of this episode, but like getting to the classification of information itself. And when we talk about libraries as as a place where where knowledge or at least information is sorted out and classified in a certain way and under a certain tradition, you know, you start getting into like, well, that's just another system that has been born out of certain supremacist culture, right? And then you link that into Google and algorithms because those are also mechanisms for classifying information. So it's like there has to be a parallel there of like, how are we sorting out information? When we say history, whose history? Yeah. You know, when we say like nature, whose nature? If you go into the exotic plants and exotic species, are they exotic if they have been around here just before people discover them? I think <laughs> Quote I unquote, because people already were here, people already knew about them. You know, like by here, I mean like this continent. Uh, the Americas, but like, you know what I mean? It's it's so we we got in a little bit more into the structural part of libraries as opposed to like the philosophy behind the actual organizing. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember reading that in the Dewey Decimal System, there's Christianity and then other religions in the religions classification, and then other religions are then subdivided. And it's interesting that in that just one single example, you remember who decides on a classification system and what other is. So there's there's definitely a reason to take a critical eye. And I think it's okay to love something and love its existence and still always use that love to also want to improve the space, to want to make it better. It's not not loving something to talk about it thoughtfully and say, well, let's make this even better. Let's allow someone else the opportunity to love it and improve it. Yep. And also knowing history, right? Knowing how things came to be. What about the politics of our respective countries allowed for libraries to exist, to, to be funded, to be, I don't know, to be supported as a thing that doesn't make money? I don't know. I like to, I like to think about and a lot to learn from um, in thinking about public space like this. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening to The Intersection of Things. Um, don't forget to tell your friends about us. You know all the rent and spiel. You can find us at www.theintersectionofthings.com uh, All of the episodes and footnotes can be found there. Our Twitter is at thingsintersect. That's right. <laughs> you sounded so questioning. It's at thingsintersect, no doubt, for sure. Um, I'm Ruth Keystick Deal, and you can find me on Twitter at Nessient, N E S I E N T Y M C A. And I'm Marina, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter as well at Undaced and Such. Quality content guaranteed. <laughs> Alright. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Oh, yeah! Mr. David Mark Hucklesby. Yes? Yes. Yes. For the music! Original music composed by David Mark Hucklesby. Thank you. Bye.